0: When confronted with very human questions about why bad things happen to people, and how is sin involved in all of that, Jesus appeals again to a parable to illustrate the patience with which God in Christ deals with each of us, seeking in us the fruits of faith. This sermon was preached on Sunday, March 11th, the third Sunday of Lent, at Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley. In the name of the God of the burning bush, amen. Amen. Going back home to Kansas a few years back, I took time to drive past my childhood home My parents moved to Missouri when I was away in undergraduate school, so a number of years had passed before I once again saw the one-level ranch style. It was no longer sitting at the edge of an alfalfa field, but it was surrounded now by big homes and condominiums that had gone in as the edge of little McPherson, Kansas, got pushed back for new development. Ours was still the most modest house on the block, beside it the row of hedge trees that had been there since before, well, God was there, those hedge trees that would throw big, sticky green hedge apples in the summertime, good only for getting caught in the lawnmower and dulling the blades. Not even the squirrels would touch them for seeds unless they were desperate. But behind the house, I noticed that something was now missing. The clean, neatly trimmed lawn now covered what had once been my parents' big garden plot. It brought back memories when I was a second grader and we moved to McPherson. Because it all began with my mother digging hard into the dense clay soil of South Central Kansas turning over clod after clod of the red hard stuff. And how a dentist and farmer of our little mission church brought in a whole truckload of manure from his farm. Of course, it reeked to high heaven. But my mom and dad strongly shoveled the muck over the soil and then plowed it in with a brand new red shiny rototiller while I watched at a safe distance and wondered, How that soil turned rich and loamy, full of earthworms and bugs and garden crops year after year. Peonies and nasturtiums and potatoes. And, of course, in Kansas, what do you get but bumper crops of tomatoes and cucumbers that would have all us kids out in the neighborhood with our radio flyer wagon loads, distributing the extra to anyone who would take them and even to our neighbors who already had bumper crops of their own, but would take them just the same. Vines of beans growing up, those improvised stakes with string between. Corn in the autumn. The marigolds I would plant seed by seed around the perimeter, hoping that they would keep the bugs away. And then the squash and even the occasional pumpkin in the late summer and fall and the weeds (laughs) yes the wild morning glory or what we less affectionately called bindweed as it would rapidly take over during hot wet summers one year my mother plowed the stuff straight back into the garden without thinking and all the fragments germinated So the following season, you can imagine what we had, a layer of stifling, almost impossible to break vine. We could never beat this stuff. But it was the garden I grew up with, the rich soil that would get caked under my fingernails and cling to my shoes. It was the garden of a family's joyful labor and love with all its successes and failures year after year. And now it's all gone. So my less than charitable thought is that I I harbor a secret hope that with all the years of mulching, turning, and cultivation, the grass where the garden soil grows extra fast so the new owners have to mow it more than once a week. Today we remember some of the garden images of our Christian tradition the rich, loamy soil where the story began to sprout. One of these, of course, is the story of Moses and the burning bush. It's a primordial story of our Judeo-Christian faith, where this fugitive, far away from his people, has a life-changing, mystical experience on Mount Horeb with a burning bush. And the call of this mysterious god who claims dominion over not only the people of Israel and all of Moses' ancestors, but existence itself. When Moses asks this strange God's name, the answer is not some lofty sounding or even beautiful name. God doesn't even say to him, I live here or I live there. But God says simply and profoundly, I am. No further questions needed for this God of ours who lives in the reality of our bones and in the spaces between the stars. No further evidence required than simple being itself. God is. More than mere existence. God is the reality upon which everything else exists. God is the framework, the maker, the gardener of the cosmos. God is being, from whom all personhood flows, the strength and weight of rock itself, the power behind all power greater than the sea, hotter than all fire, more present than our breath. I am who I am, God says to Moses. A God who will not be reduced to human names or definitions, and a God who will set us free from all our self-imposed limitations. Then we fast forward to first century Palestine, long after the exodus, the founding of Israel, the ascendancy of David's lineage of kings, and the exile of the people in Babylon and their return. Jesus has been speaking to the crowds, and a group of people approach him with a burning question that might have been taken right out of the headlines of the Jerusalem times, had there been one in the first century. They bring up the apparently well-known story of Galileans, Jesus' geographic kin, who had been slain by Pilate, possibly while offering sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. It was a violent and grisly act that would have provoked any good Jew of the time to outrage and profound anger. And then they mention a tragedy, a tower in the city that fell, crushing 18 people. So, Jesus, why do bad things happen to good people? Or to put it a little more accurately, they were asking him, why do bad things happen to people, period? A bit like them today, we are caught in the delusion that bad things happen to people for a reason that maybe those of us who are good enough will receive sufficient favor to avoid sudden catastrophe. Because that notion gives us, just as it gave our ancient spiritual ancestors, a sense of control over life that really will not be controlled, life in a dangerous world. But Jesus, in his usual rabbinical style, turns the story around on them and to some degree on us, reminding us that while we worry about the sins of the victims of Pilate or the falling tower of Siloam, that we have forgotten our own sinfulness, that we were lucky enough not to fall to calamities in our own age, just as they were lucky not to fall victim to the ones in theirs, doesn't mean that we or they are any better than those who did. It's a spooky teaching, really. But it's a plaintive reminder that comes up again and again in Scripture, as it does in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, where Paul is telling the church at Corinth To learn from the lessons that the ancient Israelites had to learn the hard way while wandering in the wilderness, while wandering in the wilderness and failing to root themselves in the God named I Am, and instead pursuing the more tangible but fleeting gods of food, drink, licentiousness, and self indulgence. But even if those lessons are well taken, the ancient Corinthians and we are told to constantly be wary of the sin of pride, Paul puts it this way quite simply, so if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. The Lenten journey is like that. Every time we think we have life figured out, we are to meet a burning bush, a God who refuses to be named, or told by our Savior to look back at ourselves before judging others, to remember with humility the bindweed in our own lives, the soil clods that remain infertile and heavy in our hearts, the fig tree that is rooted but has not yet borne the fruit of salvation for us or for others. Jesus closes today's gospel with a beautiful parable about a frustrated landowner who knows it seems very little about gardens and even less about trees. His desperate impatience with the fig tree that has still not borne fruit is so familiar to us. It is like our frustration with ourselves and each other because of the unexpected and failed expectations as we meet the pride and hypocrisy of our lives. Our frustration gets even more pointed sometimes, and we want to be like the landowner. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? Why am I wasting my time? Why am I struggling again to put things right when I know they will go wrong? Why do I bother with this relationship Why do I bother with this community or even my own heart when it will let me down? But the landowner is smart enough to hire a gardener. And the gardener knows what is required. He turns the soil, puts in the manure, and holds out hope for another year that the tree might bear fruit. Mid-Lent comes to us with our own spiritual crises, the spiritual crises that haunt our lives, our frustration with God at times, and our frustration often with fruitless endeavors, or at least fruitless as they seem to us. They are like the corn crop I grew one year in our family garden, and it got overtaken by worms. Or the bindweed that we could never seem to overcome. Or that darned apricot tree that grew next to the garden, that wouldn't bear fruit for year after year, succumbing to late frosts and defying my mother's best efforts, her PhD in horticulture notwithstanding. Jesus is the gardener of our hearts and lives our constant gardener, even. Maybe some of you know the story or have seen the movie. Because like a devoted husband out for truth, God in Christ is constantly turning over the soil of our hearts, of our relationships, and of our communities, looking and hoping for the fruit that will come in due season. The stone and clay of our lives is slowly turned by the gospel into rich, loamy soil, where the seedlings take root and the apricot tree one season will bear a huge crop. Ours did at last one year. I will never forget it, nor will my mother who was canning apricots for days. So keep hope alive and watch for the gardener in your midst. The one who says, I am who I am, when we ask, who are you? What is your name? The one who walks and teaches us even when we are on our beds in frustration and fatigue. The one who comes among us and turns our bad soil into good seeking the truth in us with patience and long-suffering love, so that we may grow up and bear fruit in due season, well and good for God's glory, and well and good for God's people. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We strive to be a welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or through our website, oursaviormv.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V, for Mill Valley, dot org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.